0: We're always telling your stories, and it's time someone tells ours. We're humans first, journalists second. We chose this career to give you a voice, now we're voicing ours. It's true, journalism has much room for improvement, but not all hope is lost, and we want your trust back by humanizing one journalist at a time. We're sharing with you what we go through to bring you the news. The pain, the tears, the trauma, and the mental health struggles. It's painful, and sometimes we even work two jobs to make ends meet. But we all have something in common the passion, the joy, and the love we feel for storytelling and holding the powerful accountable. That includes holding ourselves accountable. So here are stories from us. This is how we want to help improve the news industry. The Awakened Journalist is proud to present Media Healers by Emiliana Molina Fajardo. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Awakened Journalist and our third season of Media Healers. I'm so glad you're here. Today, we have the honor of speaking to Kirsten Delgado Marriaga. She's a two-time Emmy Award nominee and has been in the news industry for more than a decade. She's also the author of Be a Journalist, they said, and has covered local, national and international news across five different television stations. During her career, she's covered tragedies like Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, the aftermath of Pulse nightclub, and much more. Her book, Be a Journalist They Said, talks about how to navigate the news industry, how to negotiate your first contract and how to survive it, how to jump onto the next market if you are a journalist looking to make your next move within the industry, and how to approach new stories with humanity, which I think is uh, very important, especially after our struggles with covid um, and the way we are all doing journalism nowadays. So, Kirsten, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me and for um, being able and open to share your story with us.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. We don't talk enough about uh the realities of this business. That's why I wrote my book. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. Love it. Um, Okay. So let's start with your personal story and your journey before we hop on into your book. How did you decide to become a journalist?
1: really simple answer. When I was 14 years old, my English uh, teacher, my freshman English teacher told me that I was the best writer in her class. And so my brain went to, I should do something with, with the skill that I'm naturally good at. Uh, And so I did, and was laser focused, got my degree in uh, broadcast broadcast journalism, and started in the business as a production assistant. From there, went to my first market, uh, market 128.
0: So that's a lot of jumps in, in your career, and starting in the 100s isn't always easy. So how was that first job for you, and what were some of the challenges that you faced?
1: You know, I'm finding more and more how unique my experience was. And by that, I mean that we all have our uh, horrifying nightmare stories of working in our first small market, right? Um, I always say that like, and I say it in the book, that like uh, your first market's really an extension of college. It's kind of just like you're putting everything you've learned in a textbook into action, and you get to practice that. And that's why you're in a small market to make those mistakes. but I walked into a station that didn't have a news director. Uh, and so I, right, exactly. <laughs> so uh, and, and part of the I really wanted to write the book because like, I didn't know what to look for. When you walk yeah. into a station you're just like, you think everything's just like smooth sailing and it's like a well-oiled, well-oiled machine and it wasn't. And uh, you know, uh, I, thought that I would be walking into a morning show that was put together we were actually creating a morning show while I was there um, when I arrived and um, you know so that wasn't what I signed up for you know my position uh, as I applied for it was a producer anchor position which made sense to me in a smaller market that that would be the case but I was actually producer anchor and editor of the morning show Um, so I had to put the, the show together and I had to edit all the videos and I had to Uh, anchor, uh, co-anchor the show and run prompter for myself and my co-anchor for two and a half hours standing up. Hmm. And um, the one thing that I wanna get across to people is how little transparency you're going to get when you get into this business. I mean, it's just like, I mean, it's smoke in like, what is it smoke in mirrors? It's smoke in mirrors everywhere in this business. And um, you just know so little of that when you
0: walk in the door, you know? It's ironic too, because it's journalism. Here we are exposing truths and there's so little transparency within the news industry. Go I ahead, mean, you're going. Just
1: like, <laughs> you're just like hood, hoodwinked left and right, especially in your first market. You know, you're gonna have such a lack of resources uh, because of, by virtue of being just a smaller market, you know? And so if you can help, if I can help alleviate that stuff for people with their first job, that's all the intent of my book i just i just need people to know what they're getting on and getting into it's not i'm not trying to be you know i'm not trying to talk people at being a journalist i just want you to have the full scope of what you're getting into because i wish i would have known i don't think it would have deterred me but it would have better prepared me mentally which i think for me is half the battle
0: oh yeah and you know just so you don't have to jump into that first market blindsided Um, Because I wish I would have had a book like yours when I first started my first job in the news industry. I think we would have been better equipped with the tools that we need to succeed and not been faced with so much disappointment uh, with the lack of transparency when here we are trying to work so hard to share the truth to the world and to the audience. Um, So definitely thank you for that book because Um, I actually haven't read it, but I've read all the talking points and stuff, Um, and you know from what I've been able to gather, uh, it is a very much needed resource, um, especially for those students that are graduating and jumping into their first job so silly. I I should have sent you a copy. I will send you one after today. Thank you. You're so sweet. You're so sweet. Thank you. Uh, No, yeah, I just want to be completely transparent. Like this is what I read was off of your website. So I haven't read the book, but I'm sure it is very helpful because already the talking points were extremely helpful. And I was like, I wish I would have had this when I started. (laughs) Um, Kirsten, okay. so for you, it was very early on learning, you know, and and knowing that your calling had to do with writing and and being a journalist somehow. Um, I guess after that first market, once you start jumping around markets and, you know, once you start being more aware of what the industry looks like from inside and how it operates uh, what were some of the biggest lessons that you've, I guess, cherished with you till this day, because you're still in the news industry and not a lot of us make it past the two year mark or three year or five year. Um, so what keeps you going and and what have been some of the biggest lessons?
1: So good and bad. I think the one thing that I love about journalism is that you get to see the best and worst of humanity. Um, you see a lot of senseless, awful crime, a lot of violence um, over a lot of times really stupid uh, reasons for, for death and violence. Um, at the same time, through those same dire circumstances, you see the best of humanity. You see the hero, stranger who went to save the guy who did, you know. He didn't know him and he just jumped into a pond to try to pull him out of a car like you see that stuff all the time too so even though something's dire you almost always at least in my position see like the best of humanity in the worst of circumstances and I don't think that people you go to a cubicle and you work at a, on a computer for eight hours nine hours a day that you get to see stuff like that all the time you might see it randomly on your way home from work or whatever, but for us as journalists, it's almost a daily occurrence that you see something that's tragic, but also remarkable at the same time. So that's what I love about it because things to me are never as bad as they may seem because of those circumstances that I experienced as a reporter almost on a daily basis.
0: For sure. And, you know, I completely agree with you, we get to see the worst and, and the best of humanity. And sometimes, um, you know, the best is just so amazing and rewarding, because it teaches us and reminds us, I think, why we went into this job and this career. And it's so beautiful. Um, but the worst can be so hard. And we barely have any resources to cope with the trauma and understand how hard and difficult and challenging it is to cover those news stories and how difficult it is to just be able to move on to the next news story because i know that's a line we use often in the news industry and it's like "No, no no wait after hurricane maria you probably needed time to process what you just witnessed what you just saw all the victims that you spoke to after the shooting at marjorie stoneman douglas you probably needed time to sit down and process oh like so many things just it's valentine's day a day filled with love and here we are covering a shooting and a massacre and seeing so many family members cry and and you know facing so much pain and suffering um i'm wondering how you yourself having covered so many difficult news stories, have found ways to cope and to heal from the trauma?
1: One, I think it's knowing your capacity in general as a human outside of being a journalist, right? Because they, they, there's this show on Netflix, it's about a journalist, she's a journalist, and she said, um, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, I feel so sane. Cause I'd never like express, I couldn't find the words to express that to people. And that's an easy way to, uh, to put it for you, someone who isn't in journalism. And be- because everything kind of bleeds over into your personal life, because again, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. Uh, you have to know as a human being, what am I capable of, hand- how much can I handle? What are my limitations, right? And that's getting to near yourself on a personal level, which, uh, something that I think is something you need to do in your first market because, and you're gonna have time to do it because you're likely gonna be somewhere isolated away from family and friends, and you're gonna need to be heavily reliant on yourself and your other uh, friends that you find in media who are in that same you know, uh, a chapter in their lives where they're paid, getting paid crap to be on television and they're just making it by struggling, trying to figure it all out. And that's the time where you really have to work on you learn who you are, because once you know who you are, not only is that just going to be central for day to day life, but <laughs> first, it's going to help you figure out, okay, I either can do that or cannot. My best example of that was I was covering execution once. And, um, you know, the PIO or whatever came out from the jail and said, Hey, do you guys want to witness the execution You want to be witnesses. And I said, no, I don't want to go see that. Like in my, in my brain, I'm going as a human being, I don't want to watch. I don't care what that person has done. I don't want to watch somebody die. You know, I consider myself really blessed that as many murders as I have covered. I've never seen a dead body on the ground. <laughs> you know, like that's something that a lot of people have to come across in this business. Um, You know, coming uh, back from Hurricane Maria, I immediately, we did, we were there for four days. I think we did 11 or 12 packages in those four days. And so I, we had shot those interviews, got all that B roll. And so I immediately went to putting those packages together. So I didn't really process anything. I think more so in the moment, I remember there was one scene and this is, I I went to Puerto Rico four months after Maria. So it was kind of an update on how the island was doing. And the answer uh, was not so good, even four months after. I mean, there were some areas that looked like the hurricane had just passed the day before. And I mean, just t- crumbling homes just sitting there that no one had uh, attempted to try to you know fix in any way, build up, remove even you know items from the home. Just, you can tell they said, this is my home, it's a dis- disaster, there's nothing worth saving, I'm gonna walk away. And there was one, I forgot what it was, but it was a mattress and it was somewhere like a mattress belongs in a bedroom, right? But it was somewhere in the house. I don't know if it was in a kitchen or a bathroom, but it was just, it seemed very odd where it was in the house. And we're thinking that's like, it was just a, such a simple way of looking how without how a picture speaks a thousand words. It was like, there's a mattress in the kitchen. What does that tell you about and this is four months after Maria. What does that tell you about that? How harsh the storm was and how uh, helpless it left people that they just left that mattress in the kitchen. And I can see right through the home because there's no walls, yeah. right? And I, I had to be 500 yards away and I'm looking and I'm going, that's a mattress, like just sitting somewhere doesn't belong at all. And I can see right through to it because there are no walls in this home. And so you see that, I remember crying when I saw that. because I remember going, this is four months. It's been four months. How does this, how is this somebody's, this is somebody's former life just displayed, right? It's just, it's hard to process that. Um, After covering Parkland, I remember feeling very, um, sorry, I'm getting a phone call.
0: No, that's fine.
1: Uh, Uh, I remember after leaving Parkland, I remember feeling very helpless because my initial thought was, this is not the last time I'm going to cover mass shooting. I'm just thinking like these 17 lives, it's just, it's not going to be enough, you know? Um, And You know, I think in this business, you need a huge support system. Wait, I mean, granted, people need support systems in life in general to get by. But in this business, you really need someone to go home and say, I just spoke to a teenager and, you know, she told me her experience of hiding in the closet for 45 minutes, texting her mom that she loved her because she didn't know she was going to see her again. And you have to be able just to talk it out. For me, that's enough to say, I need a moment and to have my husband hold me and just say, this was my day. And this is not the average person's day, but neither were, you know, but but that wasn't the average experience for those students walking into school that day either. That was not their expectation. You know, they expected to go home. And so, processing again knowing what you can and cannot handle because as much as it is my job to go cover those type of situations and those dire circumstances um it's also my job to say i can't do this you know like if it was triggering for me to the point that it was going to impact my mental health then i as a journalist should feel free to tell my news director You need to send someone else right um so you have to know what you can handle and i think that's the best um best protocol for me in terms of handling these uh tragic circumstances
0: and i think that's a huge lesson you know for all of us too because i i know we often um feel the need to want to be so perfect or good at our jobs that we are incapable of saying, no, I can't go cover this news story just because you don't want to do that in a newsroom or you don't want to seem weak or you don't want to seem problematic or like you can't go cover a tragedy. But I think it's so valid what you're saying, just know what you can and cannot cover and know what you can handle. And, you know, sit back and think, okay, what are the pros and cons of covering an execution for example why would i want to go see a person die what am i going to get out of that aside from trauma you know and just taking a moment pausing sitting back and and reflecting and analyzing the pros and cons of a story how you are gonna i don't know gather more wisdom from that experience or if it's going to leave a lasting impact uh, that may make it more challenging for you to cope with um, your mental health mm-hmm. then there definitely needs to be clear boundaries with your news directors in saying I can't cover this right now or I can't do this right now well, and formalize that
1: it's interesting in the um the example with the execution some were thinking rafts right saying no i don't want to go witness that and we're thinking well kirsten what if something goes wrong during the execution what if this uh, person who dies in this extraordinary pain because something went wrong and who's going to tell that story if you're not there
0: oh, gosh.
1: so there was a moment of i may not be doing my job right today um but it was a decision i made and i stuck with it
0: so so as you tell me this very intimate and personal experience, and like, I want the intention of this podcast, obviously to is to create a safe space for journalists to express situations like this one and where you're allowing yourself to be extremely vulnerable and share something so intimate, because I'm wondering what feelings were coming up for you at that point. And I know in some cases, we often don't draw those boundaries because we may feel some guilt as we're not doing our job good enough, or, you know, I'm not sure, but I'm wondering what those feelings were for you.
1: So I had a lot of what uh, is required of our business is sacrifice. And by that, I mean both like micro and micro and macro sacrifices. Macro being you move to a new city and state to, you know, for that next promotion, whatever micro being, you know, working on a day off or, you know, uh, working uh, 12 hours during wall-to-wall coverage. Like those are the extremes, right? Both on a daily and, uh, you know, yearly level, if you will. Uh, For me, I had a really hard time covering the uh, 2020 election. Um, I, at the time was not living with my husband because I, uh, took, made a sacrifice to get a promotion in a lower market as an anchor. Um, and by that time, I was about two years into my contract and, uh, there was a lot going on at once you had, we were about what, I guess about that point six months into the pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, the, num- the numbers then were still surging um we you know weren't in a situation now where there's vaccines available and pills available and tests at the ready and you know it was just a much dire much much more dire time um along with that you had a lot of uh leading up around that time four years of fake news fake news fake news where you know a lot of people have a hard time telling the difference between network cable news and your local newscast um and um and then on top of that you had uh politics you had a really really contentious um a really contentious election happening and it was about three weeks to the election and um I found myself just feeling really really overwhelmed to the point where I couldn't handle it anymore it wasn't just like okay, I can breathe it out and it's gonna be fine. And, you know, like using techniques, I'm very mindful of myself and why and how I'm feeling. And I try to mitigate that, right? And I said, I think I need to talk to someone. And thankfully through my job, there was a free mental health help. And I spoke to a counselor for about six weeks and she gave me some really great tools and I utilized those tools uh, going forward. But I remember, again, I think it goes back to my premise before, you have to know yourself. Mm-hmm. If you are feeling like you just can't handle things, there's a reason why. And my, I had ignored it for a long time, you know, trying, not ignored, but mitigating myself. And then there is a point where you have to say, this is no longer something I can tackle on my own. And I need to talk to someone. I need someone to give me professional assistance with this, pro- with this problem, you know? that moment for me was um, during 2020, everything was so new, right? Like we just, we didn't know anything about this virus and what the, but the next thing was gonna be in the mask debate and remote schooling and like all these things were just so fresh and new that it didn't, and plus you couldn't go anywhere, right? Like there was no point in traveling and there was restrictions even with you know my job, you had to call in and say, I went to X Y Z city. If you left your city, there was a time where there was eight week period where I couldn't leave the city that I worked in. So my husband was driving from where he was, where our home is, to meet every weekend for eight weeks in a row because I could not physically leave the city that I worked in, per my job. And so, um, you know, you didn't. There's a time you couldn't risk getting sick. You know, like it just wasn't, there's a different dynamic now as it relates to that than there was then, right? Um, and so you have all these factors going on at once. And all of a sudden, I realized it's October of 2020. And I haven't taken haven't taken any vacation time. I've taken maybe a long weekend here or there, but like a Monday through Friday, like just get away. Don't look at your phone. Don't even look at the news for a week. Just like take your brain out of your head and just breathe and get away from everything. I hadn't taken that. Mm -hmm. And the holidays were coming and my, uh, one of my EPs was putting out the schedules and said, Hey, make your requests for the holidays coming up. And I said, you know what? I haven't taken any time all year. I never ask for Christmas off because I usually leave it for uh, the people who have kids and I usually work it so that they can spend time with their children. But I said, you know what, this year I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to ask for uh, the entire week off mm-hmm. and I put the request in the wrong way. And so when we got it back in October, cause we, we asked for it in August, I was at the desk, you know, in between VOs or in weather or something. And I'm looking at my email and there it is, it comes back. And I don't have any of the days that I requested off and immediately tears just start coming down my face mm-hmm. and I'm going, I'm on, that's me on television. I don't know if we were in, weather or in a commercial break, whatever. I had time to like rectify the situation quickly, but I was like, I need to get together. And then shortly thereafter, I had a break coming up and I remember thinking, why am I having such a severe reaction to not getting days off? What, is, like something's going on here that I can no longer control. And so that's when I reached out to the counselor and she said, you weren't upset about not getting days off you're upset because that was the light at the end of the tunnel after not being off the entire year. And that light closed. It went dark and you lost all hope of getting some much needed relief for your brain. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, you've been doing a lot of stuffing, just taking it, stuffing it, internalizing it. There's been no release. And so you, you just have to be mindful. You have to be mindful of yourself and then help that you need and when you need it. And so that was for me one of the times where there was just too much going on. I couldn't handle the pandemic, the politics related to the pandemic, the politics in general at the time of the election and my my personal circumstance of not uh, seeing my husband every day because we were living in two different cities. It was a lot going on and it forced me into therapy. I mean, my job forced me into therapy, (laughs) like that's, The reality of it and that's
0: you know so valid all those emotions that were coming up for you were so valid um because i know you know that aside from the difficult news stories that we cover on a daily basis and the emotions that come with those stories oh my gosh if anything is a struggle in the news industry it's asking for christmas and new year's off (laughs) as well you know we all know how difficult it is um we all have sacrificed one or the other because we often don't even get the two do- days off, like Christmas and New Year's. It's like you have to pick between one and the other, or you get none at all because somebody has to be in the newsroom. Um, so I'm sorry that you had to go through that, you know, all those emotions. I, was rectified.
1: Were- I went back because I just put the form in the wrong way. Okay. And- um because again because i've never asked for before i didn't even know how to fill out the paperwork properly for those days yeah. so i fixed it and i was actually it took me 10 years but i actually had an entire week off for christmas it was amazing
0: okay i love it so so after after that situation and when you went to therapy like you were able to ask for the days off properly and you did get that week off yeah. okay so there was a light at the end of the tunnel
1: there was there was <laughs> yeah. much like it all it all worked out very very nicely in the end um but beyond that I mean I went on to do that um I w- went on to be with my therapist for six weeks and it was just you know constantly checking in uh and using tools um using tools just to get by whatever and she based on my needs you know personalize those tools and say I want to try this and it was helpful
0: and can you share some of those tools with us? Anything that you want to share that is super helpful that maybe can help another colleague?
1: Yes. So here's something that I thought was interesting. So uh, a lot of the calls, especially when the, around um, the election, she said 99 percent of the calls she was getting was about politics and being stressed out, and you know there was so much going on at time—social justice issues—and just it was it was a very heightened time, and it remains a very heightened time, not as heightened before as before, but you know, pretty high. And, um, and she said, you know, I've been saying to a lot of people, especially those who are unemployed because of the pandemic or underemployed because of the pandemic, I've been telling people, this is just your pandemic job. And she was like, for you, that's a little different because obviously your job literally is the pandemic. Yeah. But she said, you have to remove yourself from being Kirsten Delgado anchor. You have to pretend in your brain, you're an actress playing Kirsten Delgado anchor. That's who you are right now, because right now your job is to cover the pandemic and that is your pandemic job. But once the pandemic is over, you can go back to being Kirsten Delgado regular anchor. But for now, you're going to have to play a role. You're every day, you're going to go to work and you're going to act. And that's part, that is your role they were taking on for the day. And that thinking of it in those terms was, was helpful. Because it was able to put, it was able to help me remove myself in a way that I hadn't before. And you being in the business, you know, there is a certain part of our job that is acting, not in making of facts, but rather delivery. And, you know, our voices change and the, our appearance changes and your mannerisms and you have to perform, it's a performative, you know, um, avenue in a way. And so I just kind of leaned into that more and I found that to be helpful because. I was able to
0: remove myself in a way that I had never uh, thought of before. So I'm wondering, like, if I'm hearing you correctly, like maybe this was a role Kirsten was playing, but so it kind of gave you permission to be that Kirsten covering the pandemic as an anchor, but then also, you know, when you came back home or, you know, to your personal spaces, just going back to being yourself and focusing on personal life, Kirsten.
1: I was able to um, remove my myself emotionally when, it, when I was at work. Like I didn't have to inject, cause for the first time in life and as a, as a journalist, like when we read VOs about a murder that happens down the street, like that's just a murder behind down the street and I'm, I might not even go that way home. So I just like, it's gone, it's, you know, it just has something, it's just something that happened today. Yeah. But for the first time for the pandemic, I would say something on air that just happened. And then it would immediately impact me when I walked out that door. Yeah, Like I was facing the things that I was telling people they were going to face themselves. And that was something that doesn't happen for us often because we're able to remove my, ourselves from the murder or the rape or the city council meeting or whatever. Like, it's just something that happened that day. Yeah. Um, unless you're a reporter on the scene of something dire and then it sticks with you, right? But outside of that, especially as an anchor, you're like removed from the content in a way. Um, that was the first time that I wasn't removed for the content in a way, you know? Like, I, if this store just said you have to wear a mask, now I, finished, I had to wear a mask. In fact, you know, I'm at work on air without a mask on, right? But then the second I get off and I leave the studio, I have to put a mask on in the newsroom. So it was just like things that personally were directly impacting me for the first time instead of just having it impact the viewer, right? And, and so I think because it was impacting me personally, when it came to that that kind of actress mentality, it was like, you, you don't care about this specific subject matter. You don't you don't have to care about it. You're, you're gonna pretend you care about it. Right? But if you actually care about it, you're going to internalize too much. Because that's what I've been doing, you know, for the year and a half prior, whatever it was at that time, you know? Um, so you just got to pretend to care, do your job correctly, but then when you walk out that door, don't care about what arguments people are having about wearing masks or not, or vaccines or not, or whatever the case may be. Whatever that they, the, whatever you're considering, whatever's going to be harmful to your mental health, you can leave it behind because that's Kirsten Delgado anchor residue with that, not Kirsten Delgado wife, you know, cat mom, whatever. You know, <laughs> like it was just easier to separate those two, and that's what that tool helped me achieve.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like, a, I guess, like a a very valid mind game to something that we often do and don't even realize that we're even doing it. But I I think um for in my case for example i if i remember the term correctly it's like dissociation so separating yourself or being disconnected from that reality that you're telling so yes whenever i had to anchor and you know speak about a shooting or a massacre or homicide uh there definitely was a lot of times where i realized later on down my career that I was going through dissociation so disconnecting myself from that reality yes I'm reading it yes I'm seeing the image or the video on the television screen but learning to separate yourself in a healthy way where you're not carrying that pain that suffering but where you're I guess being mindful and aware and knowing yourself and knowing if even the fact that you decided to disconnect or dissociate from that situation is causing you to feel some type of way and then going home and dealing with it and allowing it to flow um just because we often definitely go through dissociation as journalists or detachment to get the job done to tell the stories um and that's fine and it's valid but also making time to process those emotions within ourselves and asking ourselves if we're okay after telling that news story, I think it's also 100% valid, you know, um, because we don't have enough resources within newsrooms yet, I feel like, or at least the ones that I had been in um, until my, my last job, honestly, um, to learn how to cope with that, those mental challenges that come with the job.
1: Well, no one talks about it you and know,
0: um, exactly. no,
1: one no one, um, no one says, Hey, that was a rough day. Are you okay? Like no one has those conversations because it's just the job and you just do it and you move on with your life. But even as much as we are able to, um, detach ourselves and a lot of times more often than not become, um, desensitized mm-hmm. by everything. Um, doesn't mean that you're not still ingesting all of that subconsciously and that's going to present itself in an ugly way if left untreated so again knowing yourself knowing what you can and cannot handle and saying have i checked in with myself today am i good have i checked on my in myself in with myself on a weekly basis whatever after you have to you have to take those moments for yourself because it's going to show up when you don't get vacation requests and you're gonna cry at the desk.
0: You know, like, you know, like that's, yeah. Yeah, which and I love that and that's so valid. And and I love that you just said that, you know, just because we are dissociating or detaching ourselves from the story doesn't mean we don't take it with us subconsciously. That's so true. Uh, So just, it's understanding, you know, if you are taking it with you, what are you gonna do about it? And what are you gonna do to help yourself heal? because not getting that time off or that vacation is like the surface or the tip of the iceberg of the problem that you have underneath you know because Mm -hmm. yeah and why like why is it that something something that seems so small instead of you know a shooting or a homicide being what triggers you to have that breakdown So clearly like when, when something like the vacation, um, becomes that trigger that makes you break down. It's understanding like, okay, what was I not processing? What was I taking home subconsciously that I wasn't working on that is, has gotten me to this level. And I love that you just brought that up. That's amazing. So true.
1: It's just a, it's a symptom of a bigger, uh, bigger problem. And I think, that's everybody's reality in one way or another. Obviously it's a little different for us, but like everyone has those moments in life where they're like, why am I freaking out at this so much? And it's because there's something deeper going on.
0: For sure. For sure. Okay. So let's talk a little bit. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about trauma. Let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, we, I mean, even though we already did talk a little bit about it, but what do you think is, you know, the biggest lesson that uh, journalists that are looking to jump into the news industry for the first time can take away from your book and from your experiences?
1: Um, nothing is what it seems. You know, one of the sentences that I, one of the phrases that I use in the book is, um, you're going to have rose covered glasses. Everyone does like everyone has their rose colored glasses on this business. And I'm hoping that I can remove those for you ahead of time that's the object of the book so that um you're not surprised when you know you're asked to work eight days in a row you know you're not surprised Uh, but I also tell you that if you do work on a day off for example you're called in last minute that you should be compensated for that time Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that if you're a salary that means you've earned a day and if you're not salary then you're getting overtime. Mm-hmm. Um, You know these are, are lessons that we all I think a lot of times go uh, oh, it's just you know the job and it's like no you deserve a day off. I remember my um at one of my jobs my news director called me I was taking some time off in December uh, ahead of Christmas because I knew I wasn't going to get it off. Mm-hmm. and he called me while I was on vacation he's like oh so how's Miami and I was like oh it's great whatever he said okay great listen can you work a double shift Christmas Eve and Christmas day anchoring and reporting oh you no know? uh and then so the way that job worked was if I worked a double shift then I got compensated a day mm-hmm. because I was a salary so I would just get so I said I don't know can I get like four days for having worked those two days, double shifts. And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, cool. Then I'll do it. But I negotiated that in the moment, you know, I didn't go back in later and say, so because I worked, you know, like two days, would you like, no, I worked two days, double shifts. I need four days off. Mm -hmm. That's simple. But to get those cojones it's because I've been in this business long enough to know what it is I deserve and what the standard is. Right. Um, I remember at my first job, uh, he, again, I was editor, producer, and anchor, and because I was anchor, he wanted me in at 3 a.m. to put a show together to be on air 5 a.m. And I said, how in the hell am I going to do that? I need to come in when a producer would come in the night before in order to get the job on, you know, the show on air. And he gave me a hard time, finally gave in because I was, I couldn't get the show on air the way he wanted me to. Um, so like you, it takes time, like with anything experience is everything, and it teaches you, and that's with anything in life, but it teaches you what is standard, what is correct and how to be your own best advocate. That's something else I teach in the book. You have to be your own, your best advocate. No one's going to be it for you. Hopefully you walk into a station where you have a news director who understands that you're green and they're going to be your. Cheerleader and your support system and, you know, your parent who's going to, you know, pat you on the back, but, you know, be firm and fair with you and your mentor and all these things. But if you don't walk into a newsroom where that's, that's the, you know, where, where you feel like you're really going to be tended to and mentored, then you got to rely on you, you know, and you got to say, Hey, I need help. Hey, this seems off. Hey, this or that. You know and don't let your age be the reason that you are you're kind of meek and mild and turning into yourself that's that's not something you walk in with airs thinking you know it all because you sure as hell don't and I still don't um uh, but you have to be able to put your foot down and defend yourself because no one else is going to you know and so these are the type of things that are especially useful in our business that I didn't know that I would have liked to have known. And even if you go do an internship somewhere, right? Like sometimes I didn't know the very basics of chain and command. I walked into my first newsroom, not knowing that there wasn't a news director. That's like, now you go, you like abort, abort, run. Like, you know, like, 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 like way I would have t- would take a job with there's no news director. That's a huge uh, red flag of a much bigger problem in that newsroom, right? Um, but at the time, I had my GM walking me around the station and telling me what his idea was for this show. And I'm like, I have no clue. And I'm going, do these kids know? I didn't know. I didn't know that it was gonna be a problem. That there wasn't a news director. Mm-hmm. And that might sound, it sounds very stupid to me now that I didn't know that, but I didn't know. And so I'm like, make sure there's a news director. <laughs> you know, understand the hierarchy of what you're walking into. Is there an executive producer? Is there a producer? Is there an associate producer with that show? Who's doing what and for how long? When you're the smaller, the market you are, the more, uh, people are going to be doing right. And that's fair, but how much more. And when you walk into that newsroom, if that news director doesn't sit you down with somebody to speak to in multiple departments, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Because they're trying to hide a whole bunch of stuff, you know, because every good station that I've worked at, they've sat me down in every department. I talked to someone and I got to ask a million questions. Because that's when you sit down with the EP and you go, or the producer, and you go, "So what's in a day here actually look like?" Right? And you you just hopefully they give you an honest answer, you know. But uh, that's the stuff you can inquire on your own. On your own, but you don't know to do that stuff. You know, that's something you learn over time and how this industry works. This industry is a whole school within itself, Mm -hmm. and I'm just trying to teach that school before you get into it. You know, Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the whole the whole point of the book.
0: And I love it so wise too because yes, so many red flags and and I wouldn't have known you know six seven years ago down the line either like if there's no news director that's a red flag like yeah. and it beat me I know now um, clearly because obviously the job comes with a lot of knowledge and wisdom um, but yeah knowing the you know the hierarchy within each station and how it works and who's going to do what, um, because clearly the smaller markets are working a lot um, on the backs of multimedia journalists. And that means that not often are you recording, shooting, writing, editing and doing everything yourself. But that often means, you know, a newscast somehow ends on your lap as well, because there's no producer to produce the newscast. And that's where we end up with uh, burnout and feeling overwhelmed and with journalists who are quitting the news industry after one year of being in it. So Mm -hmm. who's going to, who's going to do the job five years down the line if all our new journalists are quitting.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting time in our business. It really is, you know, at the end of the day, we're all trying our best, Mm -hmm. but I think the one thing that has been revealed out of this, um, is that we're human too, and that we need to be treated as such. And so um, newsrooms don't work in a vacuum. Just because I'm a journalist doesn't mean I don't have feelings, I can separate them and present to you, to you just the facts on air. That doesn't mean I have feelings about what I just said on air mm-hmm. one way or the other. And that doesn't mean that I'm a robot who doesn't need time off, or doesn't deserve to be treated with respect, which oftentimes comes in and outside of the newsroom. And how we're perceived from the public, you know. So um, I think there's a lot of of well, it's always just been that way in our business, and I, that's just not good enough anymore. And I think the pandemic has revealed that that standard needs to change. And I think there's been a lot more focus um, on mental health within newsrooms and being mindful of saying, "I need a moment, I need help, I need to walk away, I need a day off, I need." counseling, I need whatever. I think there's a lot more openness to that through the pandemic than there uh, ever was in our industry before.
0: I agree. I 100% agree and I couldn't have said it better. Um, Kirsten that leads me to so two more questions. One, uh, one event or something that you think has been the most rewarding situation for you within the news industry.
1: Um, I think it came out of uh, my stories, one of my stories in Puerto Rico. So um, we went to Yabucoa, which is where the city It's a mountainous area um, where uh, Hurricane Maria actually made landfall. So it's, it was Puerto Rico's first target. And um, four months after Hurricane Maria, there was still a, a huge problem in that area. Um, and so we're driving around because because things are so dire still there, the stories were plentiful. I mean, the stories, the characters were everywhere. And so I walk up on this woman and she's cleaning clothes in one of those um, painting jugs Mm -hmm. um, that has water in it. And she's cleaning clothes outside of her home. So I approach her and I ask her questions. Have you been doing, can you show me what your living situation is? And so me my photographer went in there. She was very kind and it was, she was 75 years old. It was her and her husband. And um, she said that the water had returned, I believe, six weeks earlier. And that FEMA had knocked on her door two weeks before I arrived. So you're talking about three and a half months after the hurricane's the first time they had a FEMA worker uh, knock on their door. And they're 75 years old, they can't drive, so they're relying on um, neighbors to get them food. They have a makeshift freezer or a refrigerator of a cooler that has ice in it. Um, they only take showers from the day because they don't want to fall at night. They're kind of sedentary at night because there's no electricity still. Yeah. So They can't uh, move around. And the wife had already taken a tumble actually. Wow. Um, and I just remember going, this is just, this is unbelievable. How are Americans living this way? This would be unacceptable anywhere else in the continuous United States. <laughs> and um, and it was, I think, the most heartbreaking thing to hear from her husband. His birthday was at the following month, and he said, um, "Lo que quiero para mi cumpleaños es luz. Yo creo para mi Va a ver luz. luz." And I just thought third world place Yeah, this man is saying that for his birthday he's hoping there's electricity in his home and I just I found that so heartbreaking anyway so I put that package together one of the many packages that we've come out of Puerto Rico I put it online and through the power of social media it had been shared to the granddaughter of that couple And she said, thank you so much. You put, uh, you gave me eyes on my grandparents because I'd spoken to them once or twice since a hurricane hit, but the the signal was really shoddy and it just couldn't, I just didn't know how they were really doing. Thank you for giving me eyes on them. And I thought, wow, I actually made a difference in someone's life. Cause in, in journalism with all these, you know, what we call spot news, you're just run to this breaking news, run to a shooting, run to a stabbing, run to robbery, run to this, run to that, all this crime stuff that oftentimes I know I got in it to be impactful and inspire people and make a change in the world. Oftentimes, more often than not, you don't get to do that, you know? And so for me, I thought, wow, I impacted someone. I brought relief to this person because I happened to walk up on her grandmother washing clothes outside of her home.
0: Wow. That's so Amazing. I just got the chills everywhere and like listening to you talking about it, I can just visualize it and picture it and it brings up so many memories too of, you know, stories like that um, throughout my career that it's just, it it reminds me why our mission as journalists is so beautiful. You literally brought light to a family as well, you know, um, because it's it's so meaningful when, how long had it been? Like four months since they hadn't seen each other or three months? Um, she,
1: she, lived, she lived in Connecticut, I believe. So God knows how long they actually seen each other. But after the hurricane, her big was concern was not knowing how they really were doing. Uh, again, they spoke briefly, but the, the connection was bad. And so she just didn't get a good sense of how they were actually living day to day after the hurricane. And I gave her that inadvertently. I just was doing my job, you know, and presenting the realities of what some people in Puerto Rico were still going through after the hurricane. I think at the time, the statistic was that 20% of the islands still didn't have power. And so, um, you know, I was just doing my job and I made a difference in someone's life. You know, I made her feel better, even though they were still in bad circumstances. She was able to visit physically see them and go, life is tough right now, but they're okay. You know, and, um, that was
0: a nice feeling. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a beautiful feeling. I love that. Um, okay, Kristen, and last question, unless you have anything else you want to add that maybe I haven't asked you.
1: I don't think we covered
0: a lot. <laughs> We've covered a lot. We really have covered a lot, literally. <laughs> um, so, something you would love to change in the news industry or to see be improved in the news industry?
1: Ooh, this one's gonna
0: be, yeah, and God knows we need a lot, but but you're already doing a lot with your books, so that's wonderful.
1: This <laughs> is a, a touchy answer, but it's uh unfortunately a reality, and um, it just has to be said. So, um, like I said earlier, we're not in a vacuum as journalists, right? And the newsroom doesn't function that way either. And with that comes, um, even though for the most part, we're more self-aware of, of stereotypes or, uh, you know, general things that the public may not understand, maybe we understand it more thoroughly beyond that. We still bring our personal experiences into the newsroom. When we walk in. Um, and I never had that be- become so clear to me until after uh, Hurricane Maria, when I had to constantly uh, remind and correct my colleagues that you cannot report Puerto Ricans coming over from Puerto Rico to Central Florida after the hurricane as refugees, because they are citizens of the United States and they are evacuees. Whereas Hurricane Harvey had happened just months before uh, Hurricane Maria, no one would think to call those coming from Houston refugees. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times those use those words are used interchangeably, but they're not interchangeable. And so I I mean, I would, and it would it would be irritating to me because we'd be in meetings and people would be pitching stories because I mean there's so many stories coming out of uh, Hurricane Maria for us here in Orlando because there's such a huge Puerto Rican population here. And um, and it, it, the stories would be coming every day, and I hear the pitches, right? And be in pitch meeting and I would hear, you know, because refugees, blah, 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 in reference to Puerto Ricans coming over and I just roll my eyes. And then I'd have a sense of people in the pitch meeting getting irritated at me for getting irritated.
0: Yeah.
1: And I'm like, number one, you guys are wrong. <laughs> You're going on air to a Puerto Rican audience, by the way, your audience here in, in Orlando is Hispanic and white. That is a predominant demographic uh, of our audience. Mm -hmm. you're telling them you're telling Puerto Ricans here they're not citizens that is what you're saying when you say that um having to make those corrections yeah uh in addition there was a they were running a cold open once and um the reference they were trying to make to Puerto Rico was island nation I'm overhearing it and I'm going so thankfully I've overheard the conversation from uh, talent and a manager they're writing this cold this cold open together and so I walk over from my desk over to uh where they are and I go uh, you can't reward Rico as an island nation but why not like I was met with defensiveness yeah and I go because we're a part of the United States and I'm irritated with myself now that I was meek about it Yeah. because I was I was like so gone isn't it because it's so uncomfortable to have to handle these situations but again we don't work in a vacuum people are going to come in with wrong information sometimes you have to correct it right Mm -hmm. so that second i said because we're part of the united states yeah it was like a light bulb went off in there i were like and they immediately began to make the correction right two things then happened which i thought was very interesting because they were opposite reactions so i go okay you know, crisis averted because God forbid we just said that on air. I mean, these are things you have to say, like, these are things you have to, re- like, you'd have to retract later. Like this is, it, it's not even, okay, it's wrong. And you're going to piss off your audience who is predominantly in terms of Hispanics, Puerto Rican here, Central Florida, but you're also just plain out wrong, like incorrect. Like this is why you have to retract things. Right. So I'm walking back to my desk and remember this is, just so you understand, there's maybe 10 steps, maybe 15 max between my desk and the desk I had to go over to, to have this conversation. And before I can even get back to my desk and sit down, two things happened. In response to me saying, because we're part of the United States, the manager says, you know, I just don't think of them that way. And then The talent goes, and this is why we need diversity in the newsroom. Thank you. I had two more separate responses in a span of five to 10 seconds. I remember going, it was like, I was like in a car accident and I had whiplash. I was like, on one end I'm going, I just don't think of them that way. And what's messed up is I'm Puerto Rican. So to that manager, I know in her eyes, it wasn't that I was an American, but somehow the pe- the residents of Puerto Rico are an American. She said, think of them as Americans, which is mostly the fact that that's not taught properly in school, right? And discussed amongst <laughs> society in that way. Yeah. And then you know, the other, we have the other person, the talent go, this is why we need her in the newsroom because who would have corrected this? No one, and then we would have gone on air looking like complete idiots and had to make a retraction over something so simple in a cold VO, in a cold open. Yeah. You know, when when you when we say that diversity is necessary, it's not just to meet a quota in the newsroom. It's because of these instances, these cultural things that if you have one majority race or people managing are going to be left out. That's it. It's really that simple. And that applies to any business. Yeah. Um, But especially this one, when you are dealing with culture all the time, you know, our job is different cultures of the demographic in which you work.
0: 100%.
1: We don't live in a vacuum and that exists in newsrooms and we have to discuss it because if not, God knows what's going to make air.
0: (laughs) Yes, 100%. And I love that you just told this story because you know, what I'm breaking it down to as well, and what I'm hearing within all of this, and that is so beautiful because you just explained it perfectly, is the power of language and mindful journalism. And the fact that your news director said, you know, I don't see them that way, then if you're in Orlando, what do you, how do you see your audience? This is the people you are catering to every single day. Mm-hmm. So definitely the power of language. Oh, just to be,
1: so I don't get anyone troubled. It was not my news director at the time who said that, just to be clear.
0: Okay, you're good. And no, this is why we don't even mention names. <laughs> we're probably shaming. Yeah, this is-
1: my manager and I'm sure she learned her lesson. It was a mistake, unfortunately, that a lot of people could have made.
0: For sure.
1: Uh, that was made in a lot of newsrooms, just not in hours because I stopped it.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. And I applaud you for stopping it and for being brave and speaking out about it. And um, two, so one, the power of language, you know, and, and mindful journalism and uh, having these difficult conversations and speaking all of our truths, because this is how we build community and understanding. And this is how we get to good, mindful journalism. Um, and you did that. And that's beautiful. And two, um, I forgot what the second point I was going to make was.
1: Oh, I you.
0: No. oh, no, you're good. You're good. I just, <laughs> I need to remember. I had it so clearly too. It was like, one, the power of language. And two, oh, you mentioned something so important. And I wanted to, oh, diversity, diversity mm-hmm. in the newsrooms. And Uh, Lori Lizarraga, one of the journalists that I interviewed in the first season, made a beautiful point about diversity in newsrooms, and this applies, like you said, to every single job or every single business, and just because you are hiring Hispanics or colorful people in your newsrooms does not make it uh, like an inclusive newsroom, you know because you could be hiring all these different people with different ethnicities and backgrounds and hispanics and whatnot that could share their point of view like how you shared your story about the difference between calling a puerto rican a refugee or an evacuee Mm -hmm. and the fact that you were heard and you were able to change that that makes for a diverse newsroom but often managers are just hiring colorful people but are not giving them a platform to be able to speak their truth at the table. Mm-hmm. So, having colorful people in a newsroom does not make it diverse. You know, we also have to allow them to speak out, to do what you just did, to hear them, and to make sure we make the appropriate changes so that we don't insult the very community that we are trying to inform.
1: Uh, because it comes down to listening and understanding in starting at a baseline that I may not know everything. And that's okay. No one's faulting you for not knowing that. Exactly. You know, and sometimes it's just being uh, careless and not being thoughtful, like you said, of of your audience, of your viewership. But other times it's plain out, not fact. And it's our job to be factual. You know, so in my situation, it was both, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, I can't imagine the calls we would have gotten if, you know, we would have referred to Puerto Ricans as refugees and referred to Puerto Rico as an island nation on air. Like, it just, it would have been a nightmare and it would have been a problem. And that's how you lose your viewers' trust, you know? And this is not the time where we can afford to do that. We can never afford to do it, but especially now.
0: Exactly. I love that. Kirsten, I am so honored uh, that you accepted to speak to me on Media Healers. I am so honored uh, to have had this conversation with you. It was so beautiful, Um, so much filled with knowledge and wisdom, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing that with us. And I know that this interview is going to bring a lot of light to the people that listen to it uh, and hopefully help create some changes within the news industry as well.
1: I so appreciate it. You're doing great work here because, uh, these are conversations that need to be had. And, and the title is, is says it all media community people need healing. <laughs> we just do. And, uh, it's especially important now. So you're doing an amazing job. And, and thank you for taking on this effort because it's not something that's discussed and we need to. And I think that's the most, uh, I think the the most visible, uh, the most thing I've gotten visibility recently of how much our industry needs healing is when that poor girl was hit by a car just recently, you know, um, these are circumstances that we leave ourselves, uh, uh susceptible to, you know, where you have these MMJs doing live shots by themselves. And yes, the obvious answer is a photographer, but even more basic than that, have the news director go out there, have a, produ- have someone, someone from sales. Yeah. Can you do me a favor, can you go out for 10 minutes and do this live shop with my reporter tonight? Mm-hmm. Have a body there. It doesn't matter who the body is, you know, granted. Photographer, number one option in, in that, you know, in that situation. But just have, if you, if you can't afford it, which I doubt is the actual case.
0: Exactly. <laughs>
1: have a body there just have a body just to be with her, so she's not by herself doing it, a, a live shot in the dark during hazardous weather, by the way. Mm. I mean, it's just... Anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that'll open a whole other <laughs> conversation too, and which by the way, I reached out to Tori to try to interview her, but I'm sure she's overwhelmed with messages right now. So she hasn't even gone through to mine, (laughs) but I will continue to try because uh, that's a very important conversation too that needs to be had. Multimedia journalists on the field by themselves with live shots at night and hazardous weather is just completely unnecessary. A
1: whole
0: bunch of bad elements in one sentence. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. A a really damaging sentence. We're taking on its
1: effort because it's, it's a whole lot of stuff that needs to be highlighted and doing
0: that. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us again. Journalists, this one's for you. To help you heal, to help you understand your worth, and to help you know you're not alone. So share the love and subscribe to Spotify and YouTube and follow us on Instagram. The Awakened Journalist is proud to present Media Healers by Emiliana Molina Fahad.